Uptown Punk won't give it to you. Uptown Punk won't give it to you. I'm sorry. I, I'm starting to like that music mm-hmm. for the Soybean Aphid Podcast. It grows on you. It does. You know what else grows? The number of podcasts we've done this year. This is the sixth podcast. I know. It's the 10th of June. Hi, I'm Erin Hodson. And I'm Matt O'Neill. And we are broadcasting from deep in the studios here at the Insectory. <laughs> But it's true. It's your office. It's feeling pretty toasty in here because we have to turn off the air conditioner in order for you guys to hear us. And we turn off the air conditioner and we turn on the sweat. <laughs> We're sweating for you. Blood, yeah. sweat, and tears podcast. Hardest working podcast. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we have a bunch of things to talk about. Yeah. So much to talk about. Yeah. The, um, I'm just looking at our little list here. Uh, you put first on the list the conference call. Yeah, we have a conference call every Monday with field agronomists from around the state, and so far things are looking pretty good. Um, the only problems that people are really talking about as far as getting planting in is in the southwestern part of the state. Where We're still it's planting. Still planting soybean. Whoa. Yes, because this it's been, it's been too sixth, wet. The 10th of June. Yeah, it's, it's too wet. Wow. And so um, if you ask Mark Licht, who's an agronomist, he said you can still get nearly full yield potential, but um, the odds become more variable. So right. um, there are decisions to be made when you are planting this late. So I drove down to Quincy, Illinois, uh, on the Mississippi, West Central Illinois. And yeah, I was surprised. So this was last weekend. And I was surprised at how many fields looked bare. Um, I'm zipping along at the speed limit, as one does. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there were probably seedlings sprouting up, but, yeah, Yeah. a lot of late planting. Yeah, and so uh, if, of course, things are too wet to plant, then you also have the chance of poor weed control. Mm. And um, people are also having trouble, um, if they're starting to use cover crops like rye, uh, properly terminating those cover crops. Yeah, so the... You are our extension entomologist. You gather together all the information on recommendations for pest stuff. Tell me if I have this wrong. You want to burn down the cover crop two weeks before planting. Is that right? Well, there is an ideal window that you'd like to terminate it, and um, I don't know if that's actually cut and dry. Um, and so some people would say yeah. even like four to five days before you plant, as long as it, there is rye is gone right but yeah there are some people are doing it up a, m- a month before corn planting and then like the next day yeah. or the day before and so um what is ideal i i don't have a clear understanding so uh i was talking to my good buddy john tooker out at penn state and um, telling him about some of the issues we've seen where uh ground planted that into what was a cover crop we're seeing some um, insect pest problems. And this is the second topic, seedling insects on our list. And the, the concept here in sort of pest management uh, ecosystem things is the, um, uh, the cover crop acts as a green bridge. Have you heard this expression before? Yep. That, tell me, if, again, tell me if I have this wrong, but it's a bridge between the the crop, say from the fall that was harvested, offering a bridge to the crop that's going to be planted in the spring. So if the ground was bare, there'd be nothing there. 
But if you have a cover crop or something, or weeds even, can act like this, it's thought, can act as a bridge to allow some pests to survive and show up next, uh, next spring. And it looks like we're seeing that in a few places, but not a lot. Uh, but it was interesting. He was telling me in uh, Pennsylvania, some farmers plant directly into the rye cover crop. They put yeah. a, a, a mulcher type uh, a roller on the front or of their planter, and then they move, kind of mow it down, and then plant directly behind it. And they find that they get better pest protection that way than burning things down and then planting later, because some of the pests prefer the rye to the the crop. And then if you've got some habitat there, you've got some predators, natural enemies to attack the pests mm-hmm. that would use that bridge. But that's Pennsylvania. I don't know how consistently that would work in the in Iowa. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's why I said there isn't really a clear-cut preference, it seems like, at least that I've heard here in Iowa, because I would say most people would not be thinking about insect management or pest management with the timing of terminating the cover crop they're thinking of a from a performance of the crop but um, as people try more cover crops in the state um, they're dabbling with cover crops they realize very quickly that they can be a green bridge for armyworms cutworms and other things that we've been seeing this year so um, I'm trying to think like as a farmer now or somebody who's dealing with this and I think the one thing you'd want to do is maybe spend a little bit more time scouting those plots, those fields where a cover crop was present. Absolutely. Um, they should become priority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we had one phone, one graduate student uh, visit a field. This was a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, Mike Dunbar, yep. where army worm were inf- had infested a field where there was a cover crop that didn't quite get burned down. And those army worms uh, that were, the eggs were laid in the cover crop hatched went after the corn and then spread out to the rest of the field. So he was saying to, uh, in an email that a nearby farm had armyworm and soybeans. Mm-hmm. So armyworm, they don't just attack corn, they yeah. also attack soybeans. That's yeah. a, you know, you just heard a beep. That Those are emails coming into your computer about yeah. armyworms yeah, and I'm cover getting, crops. Yeah, I'm getting blasted here with uh, incoming emails from agronomists and, and other people. Um, they're all starting to notice it because some people think they have herbicide damage. Some people think, you know, they're just scouting for like stand, stand assessments, yeah. and they're finding all these armyworms. And almost every field that I hear about with armyworms this year, they've had problems with with terminating their rye cover crop and just as you suggested it's a green bridge and so they spill over to corn they can spill over to soybean and you can get some pretty significant defoliation so you just wrote an article about this uh with mike dunbar yeah i think it was about two weeks ago on icm news yeah and we talked about it uh two weeks ago on the podcast yep are you preparing another article on this or do you think you'll do any follow-up with the soybean issue Um, in other words uh all the recommendations for corn, do they f- carry over to soybean as well? Uh, well, they d- they don't really carry over because soybean is a different crop, and it can let actually. Me just, let me just. You heard this first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> soybean is a different. Soybean crop from is corn. different than corn in the fact that it can tolerate a lot more defoliation. Right. And so, um, what I would recommend is is to go out there, assess defoliation with the whole field, not just edges or spots that seem to be particularly bad. And if the defoliation exceeds 30%. 30% defoliation before of the bloom, leaves. Of the entire yeah. plant. Yeah. 
So that that's pretty significant. Yeah, and there are resources online where people can see what thirty percent looks like because yeah. it is kind of horrifying. Yeah, right? I, I mean, mean, you would think that a soybean plant wouldn't be able to recover if, if a third of it had disappeared, but actually, in the yeah. vegetative state, they they're they're very vigorous, and so there might be. Uh, perimeter spray or targeted spray that might be uh, more cost effective if you have armyworms say in a patch or something yeah. or along a border. So it's kind of like hail damage mm-hmm. where you can see a plant get mm-hmm. shredded, yeah. a soybean plant get shredded, but it'll it'll come back, especially yeah. early in the season. Yeah, That defoliation is harder to come back in the pod filling stages. Yeah. But yeah, and, and if most of the larvae are under an inch, realize that they have a lot yeah. of feeding to do. If most of them are an inch and a half or even longer, they're almost completed uh, their immature feeding stage. And so that's also something to take in consideration is the life stage. Yeah, 30% defoliation. Yeah. Up to, I wish 30% of me would disappear. After yeah. this family reunion that I had, <laughs> I just spent all weekend doing nothing but eating. Kind of like those caterpillars. They're, They're just, so hungry. Yeah. And so was Matt. I was not hungry, but people kept putting food in front of my face. <laughs> and you had, can't say no, thank you. No, you really can't. Yeah. yeah. Oh. These are grandma's cookies, and they're gone. <laughs> uh, so um, issues about seedling insect pests for both corn and soybeans. Um, management's different for both the two, even though the insect itself, the armyworm, yeah. may be the same species. Right. Um, and they can find information about that online, right? If you, yeah. um, I know we have articles, the uh, ICM articles that your predecessor wrote. And, yeah, I mean, and they're mostly focused on corn. It is not as as typical to see that type of activity in soybean. Yeah. And so um, just be aware that it can spill over. But the issue of defoliation for soybean, it doesn't matter what critter is doing the defoliation. No. Ladies and gentlemen, do not panic. The sirens you hear in the background are just the monthly test. There's nothing to worry about. <laughs> we should avoid the Wednesday at 10 o'clock. First of the month, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, oh, hey, look, we're at the 10-minute mark, and we still have one more thing to talk about. Yep. Should we talk about it? Yeah. Okay. So if you're, if you're, if you're a faithful listener, um, you listened to two of our on-location podcasts last week when we were at our branch meeting in Manhattan, Kansas. So we appreciate if you listen to those. I, I, think, I think it's correct to say if you are a faithful listener. <laughs> there's, and we know you, who you are. There's one listener. Uh, so Aaron and I co-organized a symposium on the topic of the cost and benefits of neonicotinoid seed treatment for, was it just for annual crops? For just crops? for field crops. Field crops. Yeah. So we had um, we had a great group of speakers that talked on this. And you wouldn't think that that topic would have a lot of diversity. But we had men and women, uh, students, postdocs, industry, and Pat Rieg from the Iowa Soybean Association uh, coming to talk about this issue both what they saw in terms of their own research and what they're hoping to see in the future to add, answer the question about whether or not these sea treatments are, for at least the neonicotinoid ones, are worthwhile. What did you learn? Anything? Um, you're right. It was highly variable, different viewpoints. But in general, I think people see the value of neonic sea treatments when it comes to seedling pest control. But in generally general i think most people thought they were overused and and not always yeah. n- not always necessary yeah the one thing that i thought was really interesting is we had um 
uh, Fred Musser from University Mississippi of State. Mississippi State. Yep. And Fred is sort of like your equivalent, right? He's an extension field crop entomologist, works mostly with soybean, but some with corn. And he has helped organize some of the data from a lot of the southern states. And I recognize that southern means different things to different people. He, and he pointed this out. He's like, you know, there's sort of the deep south and then there's the Atlantic, mid, what, mid-Atlantic mid states. Mm-hmm. And, but he showed four states, and I think it was Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Arkansas. And he showed for each of those states the kind of the benefit of seed treatments. Not only soybean, but corn and cotton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there were two patterns, general patterns that he showed. Tell me if I got this wrong, but I think he showed that, you know, for cotton, big benefit. Corn, there was a benefit. Soybean, not as much, but there was still a benefit. But if you organized it by state, and he argued, you know, that I think Louisiana was the southernmost, Mm -hmm. Tennessee the northernmost. Mm -hmm. But there was a a gradient there. The biggest benefit across all those crops was seen in Louisiana. In the most south. Yeah, Yeah. and as you went up north to Tennessee, not as much. Mm -hmm. And then when the group from uh, South Dakota, Kelly Tillman, talked about seed treatment and their role in soybean aphid management, um, she didn't see any benefit. Right. And she was summarizing data for mostly the Midwest. Yeah. So it does, it, it, the impression I was left with was, you know, there are places in the country where these treatments work really well to protect yield. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the more south you go, the more benefit. And that kind of makes sense to me as an entomologist because um, that's where, there's a lot more pests down there. Just so much more we, pressure. Yeah. It makes sense to me as well. Yeah. Are we running out of time? We're, we're getting near the end of our time. Should we wrap up? Yeah. And I want to thank all the speakers uh, that attended, uh, presented at that meeting. That was great. We'll talk more about this next time. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Abe.